This podcast is brought to you by Erickson Immigration Group. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Today's special guest is the Managing Director of Immigration and Cross-Border Policy at Bipartisan Policy Center, Teresa Brown. Pleasure to have you on. Glad to be here again. Thanks for having me. And also, I want to say congratulations to This Week in Immigration podcast. You guys just released your 100th episode. So congratulations on that. Thank you so much. Yeah, I call it the little podcast that could. Uh, <laughs> we, we started uh, back in 2017 thinking it would be like a short-lived thing because how much immigration news is there really to cover? And uh, 100 episodes later in four yeah. years, we're still doing it. Yeah, there's lots yeah. of immigration news to cover. So thanks. Yeah, yeah. We, we might have to do a collaboration. Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, you are one of the leaders in uh, the, the policy world uh, for immigration. So I just want for our listeners to tell us about your immigration policy journey and, and what first sparked your interest in civic engagement. Uh, so I don't know. My journey is kind of an odd one, maybe. Um, I mean, I've been in and around the immigration policy space for over 20 years now. Um, I, I've, I guess I'll start with the beginning. I graduated with a degree in with international relations, um, way back in the in the ancient days of the eighties, and um, I, I literally didn't know what I wanted to do with this degree. So that, back in those days, when you looked for a job, you literally opened the paper to the one ad section, and I circled every uh, job opportunity that had the word international in it. And the first job I got was for a company that did foreign credential evaluations. So. For those who aren't aware in the immigration system, for certain categories of work visas, you have to show that you have a U.S. degree or it's foreign equivalent. So this was a company that would write evaluations of foreign degrees to say whether or not it was equivalent to a U.S. degree for an immigration. So our clients were all immigration lawyers who were filing on behalf of their clients. And that's how I got started in immigration. It completely by accident. But um, it was one of those things that once I was in, I was in. So like that led to a job working directly for the law firms. And I learned how to file all different kinds of visa applications, family-based asylum, uh, employment-based applications. Um, and I did that as a, I was a senior paralegal in pretty big law firms here in Washington, DC. And I did that for seven or eight years. And I was debating at that point, like, do I go to law school? And um, one of my bosses who has been a mentor to me said, well, you know, you, you could go to law school and spend a lot of money and come back and from being a senior paralegal where you're teaching the first year associates what to do to being that first year associate at the bottom of the chain, I went, yeah, maybe I don't want to do that. But what else do I do? And she said, well, you know, immigration policy is like making the rules for the filings that you're doing. And she pointed me toward the American Immigration Lawyers Association, which was hiring for an immigration policy person. And I applied and I got the job and I've been doing immigration policy ever since. I think a lot of people get into immigration because of personal experiences. I kind of got into it accidentally, but I will say that, you know, I don't stick with a career for 25 years because I don't like it, right? Um, <laughs> I, I tend to say that I have been involved in trying to reform the immigration system for 20 years, which makes me an optimist or a masochist, and I choose the former. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. it you know, it, it is quite a journey, and you're going to have some points where you know, you hit impasses or you have to find ways around, there's obstacles, um, but you 
keep pushing, keep pushing forward. So you have definitely shown that. So, I mean, and if we fast forward to now as the managing director of immigration and cross-border policy, I know recently you guys uh, rolled out a blueprint, which I thought was very interesting. And I'll be interested to hear your take on it. It's a blueprint that addresses the root causes of Central American migration and um, for for the Biden administration. And I'm just interested of how did you guys like come to this? What is the main uh, points and, and takeaways? And honestly, how feasible yeah. <laughs> is that? Because it sounds like you're, you're taking on quite quite a load. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to this. So let me back up a few steps. Um, you know, I, one part of my career uh, after I worked in the law firms and worked for immigration policy organizations, I did work for the U.S. government for a while. I worked for Customs and Border Protection. I worked for DHS. I was a career person in the policy offices, uh, starting under the latter years of President George W. Bush and into the first term of the Obama administration. Um, and so I, I have, a, a, I think, a fairly good and comprehensive understanding of sort of what the government does at the border. Um, and starting you know, in 2014 and 2019, when we've seen this sort of major change in who is coming to the border, right? Um, for most of our history, the US-Mexico border was 99% Mexicans, 99% Mexican adults coming to the US seeking work. And suddenly we had unaccompanied children from Central America and families and people seeking asylum, the majority seeking asylum. This was very, very different from the traditional migration flows that we'd seen at the US-Mexico border. And the fact that our entire infrastructure, legal process at the border was designed for a population that could be readily and quickly returned to Mexico because they didn't have a lawful means to stay in the United States. Um, that didn't apply anymore. And we saw the impact of that when we saw the children piled up in border patrol stations and, you know, families who were, you know, desperate to come across the border on, on overstuffed rafts in the Rio Grande. And we have seen this now over and over and over again. And it just seemed like we needed to think again about what border enforcement, if you want to call it, or border management meant in this modern era. And... So back in, starting in 2018, really, we started pulling together experts from lots of different fields. Because if you're gonna look at what's happening at the border, you need experts, not just in sort of US immigration and border policy, but you also need experts in foreign policy, US-Mexico relations, because Mexico is a big key player in what happens at our border. Um, what's happened in Central America, we needed experts from that region. And we pulled together a series of working groups of these experts who, frankly, didn't always talk to each other. The immigration people didn't talk to the foreign policy people. The Mexico experts hadn't necessarily talked to the Central American experts. And it was very interesting to just hear all of their perspectives. And what we got out of that was the idea that what we're seeing is a phenomenon that impacts all of those areas, right? It's about development in the region. It's about extreme poverty. It's about lack of governance. It's about our relationship with Mexico and how we work with them if we want to manage migration that comes through Mexico into our border. It is about our asylum and immigration system, but that's sort of the last piece in the chain, if you will. Um, and so we developed this concept of 
you can't deal with what happens at the border just at the border. You need to look at everything that happens before someone gets to the border and frankly, what happens after they arrive. And so we came up with this sort of holistic idea of, of a, a continuum that started with looking at why are people leaving and what can we do with our foreign policy, our engagement, our development aid to reduce the factors that cause people to feel like they have no choice but to leave. Um, how do we work with Mexico, particularly in tackling the criminal organizations that facilitate the migration, right? We talk about the smugglers. They, they, they're in it to make money. Um, they like to be seen as humanitarian aids, but they're in it to make money and they pay off the drug cartels. The drug cartels are making millions of dollars off of the migration flows. Um, so we need to work with Mexico in dealing with that. And Mexico also has a role to play in offering an alternative to coming to the United States for some of these folks. Maybe Mexico could have a better humanitarian policy. Um, when they arrive at the border, our outdated facilities at the border are not meant for housing families and kids and vulnerable populations. We need to rethink that structure entirely. And then we have an asylum system that was set up with the idea that the majority of asylum cases would come through airports or people already in the country and a small number from the border. And that's been completely flipped on its head. Now, the majority of new asylum cases are coming from the border region. It's causing huge backlogs in our immigration courts that had no capacity to take them. So we need to fix all of that. Um, and so we started thinking about all of these, these things. And one of the things that we realized also was that we have merge this idea of law enforcement and the border with managing the migration that happens. And migration by and large isn't really about law enforcement. Most of these people are not criminals. They're not coming to harm us. They're not smuggling drugs. They're coming to live and work and looking for a better life. That's not a law enforcement issue. That's a humanitarian and immigration enforcement issue. But by merging it with law enforcement, we've kind of created this idea that, well, if we're just harsher about enforcing the law, fewer people will come. So we have invested in deterrence and punishing people in courts and criminal statutes, even separating families and children, building a wall, putting people in detention. And guess what? It's not really worked. Um, not for this new migration. And it's not gonna work because the things that are causing people to leave are so life and death that we really, as the United States, couldn't make things so miserable when they arrived that they wouldn't still wanna come. And would we want to? So our idea is we need to rethink the border. We need to think of it as a place of migration management. And we need to rethink that what happens to people when they get to the border can't just be at the border. It needs to, we need to fix our system that deals with them after they arrive and also work with everything that happens before they come. Right. Um, it's really taking the approach less so of punishment and enforcement rather than um, support and stabilization to make sure they have at least a, a pathway to bettering themselves so they wouldn't have a, a reason to migrate. Yeah. 
And and that's the ultimate solution, but it's also the very long term solution. Right? That's yeah. going to take a long term. So <laughs> so, so we do so we do break it down also into sort of mm -hmm. the long term investments that we need to make, the medium term, and the and the short term. What can we do right now? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't want to leave the impression that I'm saying we don't need to enforce the border. We do, and sure. and enforcement has to happen, and we need to encourage people to you know to to come you know, legally when possible, but we need to make those avenues realistic. And right now we don't. Um, it's very difficult for somebody who wants to apply for refugee status or asylum from that region to do so. We don't have a lot of refugee processing in that area. So most of them have to come to the border to make an asylum claim. And then, you know, once they arrive at the border, again, they're treated like, you know, a, a, a criminal by putting being put into a, a jail for a period of time rather than somebody who's seeking protection. That having been said, the system, the enforcement of the system happens through adjudication. If we had a system that could receive asylum cases and review them and process them in a relatively reasonably short period of time, and I'm not talking days, but maybe months, a few months, rather than three to five years, then people who don't have valid asylum claims would quickly be determined not to be valid and could be returned. And that self-reinforces that you come only if you really think you have a, a real asylum claim. Combine that with ways that we could help people access that protection without coming all the way to the border. Regional asylum uh, application centers or a re real refugee reprocessing in the area that can provide a real alternative asking other countries in the region to help us provide protection for people who really need it. Um, those are alternatives. And then our legal immigration system, if people are really looking for work and we have a need for them, why can't we expand our legal immigration system to give them visas to allow them to come? And then, you know, that, that also manages the migration. Um, the key is you have valid, realistic, lawful ways that people can come alternatives to just showing up the border and entering. You have a system that can manage those who do arrive and process those cases in a relatively quick period of time so they get a decision and know what happens to them. And then you enforce what happens next. They have to go home or they get to stay. All of that is part of keeping the system having integrity and managing migration in a humane way. So when you have these short-term, medium-term, and long-term goals and you put it into a policy, what's the next step? Uh, who do we present this to? Whose hands do we exchange it with? Well, we, we put it out in the public world. We put it out on our mm -hmm. website. We promote it uh, on our podcast and places like this. And we give it to whoever we want, whoever wants to see it. Mm -hmm. um, we send it to the Hill. We send it to the administration. We try to get other people to, to highlight it and say, hey, this is an idea maybe you should look at. Um, you know, in our line of work, I work for you know so-called think tank. And so our job is to generate ideas, generate ideas and policies that we think are good policies. And then we put them out into the world. And I always say that in Washington, D.C., it's kind of like can be a giant echo chamber. And if mm -hmm. I hear my idea echoed back to me from someone else in a policymaking role, whether or not it's ascribed to me or not, I feel like I've won. Because it means that idea that I started has now gotten into the generalized policy conversation and eventually can end up taking root. 
Um, so mm -hmm. that's what we work on. We try to we try to generate these ideas. We try to put them into the public space. We try to get people to see, you know, how it can be helpful. Um, we try to come at it from a bipartisan lens. I work at a place called the Bipartisan Policy Center. So, you know, it's not about Republicans or Democrats. It's about what are the ideas that both sides can agree on? Um, and how do we get them to see the value in doing that? And I was actually curious about that um, with the Bipartisan Policy Center. That means there's a level of cooperation and, and compromises that's, yes. that's needed. So how does the team go about making those concessions and when there are differences of opinions? Um, so, you know, we, we go about things in a couple of different ways at BPC. Our, traditionally, what we the way we work is we will pull together um, groups of former elected and appointed officials from both parties, stakeholders in the policymaking area in a task force or a commission or a working group, and we get them to talk about the policy ideas and they see what they can come up with and they can agree to and how comfortable they are making those compromises or concessions and then sort of publicly sticking by them. And um, what our president, Jason Grumet, likes to say is that, you know, that's the hard work of governance is sitting down and working through differences. It doesn't mean you check your partisanship at the door or your principles, but it means you, you do the hard work of figuring out where you can come to agreement and where you can make some principled compromise that advances both some of the things that you want and some things that the other party wants. Um, and if Congress isn't up to doing that, then maybe we can show them how by doing it ourselves. Mm -hmm. So that's traditionally Absolutely. how we've done it. We've had an immigration task force that has worked with us since 2013 on some of this. And then we've also done some work, as I said, uh, on our own, pulling together these, these like the Central American uh, working groups. And then we sort of see what we can take from that. And can we kind of pull together what we think are the best ideas that can get people in agreement? Um, we're not talking about black and white issues, right? Immigration is complicated. It's nuanced. How the United States deals with immigration is complicated and nuanced. And yet we tend to break down these very complicated policy ideas into very simplistic slogans. Build the wall. Abolish ICE, right? <laughs> um, but the reality is that a functioning immigration system, and actually where the majority of the public is, is not in either one of those sides. It's somewhere in the middle, right? Um, it's somewhere that says, well, we want a border that's secure. We don't want people just coming across willy-nilly. At the same time, we want people to be treated humanely. Um, you know, we don't want people coming illegally, but at the same time, if you've been here 25 years, okay, we'll give you a way to get legal, right? It's about, it seems common sense, but it's neither one nor the other, it's, it's both. Um, you know, we want to see immigrants who are gonna come and help support our economy. That doesn't mean we don't want families to reunify, but we wanna know that there's something in it for us, right? That's, a poli that's, that's actually where the majority of the public sits on immigration, when you kind of dig into it. And we have, we've, we've done polling to kind of dig into where people are. Um, but it is, it's a reality of our current political climate that keeping things in that black and white us versus them mentality makes for good electoral politics. It doesn't make for good governance because it means you're always trying to blame the other side for not giving in enough to get your way rather than saying, 
I was willing to work. We got this done because we worked together. And so the issue continues to be fought over and debated, but never solved because you're constantly sort of blaming the other guy for the problem rather than working together on solutions. And so one of the things we also try very hard to do is say, we're not really going to succeed in moving forward on immigration or any of the other really complicated, hard issues we have as a country until we can figure out how to get back to that hard process of working together. Because what we have right now is a series of all or nothing policies. We have to do it all. We have to get it all right now. And we're not going to sacrifice any of the all, whatever our all is, to get a deal with the other side. And so we end up with nothing. So if all or nothing's all you got, most of the time we get nothing. And that's not a way to proceed. Uh, we need to figure out how we get something, something that's better than where we are. And going back to what I said before about being an optimist, I have to think that we can't keep continuing to limp along as a country with the broken, out-of-date immigration system we have that, frankly, nobody supports. There is nobody on any side of this issue that actually supports our existing immigration system the way it is. There's nobody who has argued for no change. So that's a place to start. Right. Well, you know, I, I would be remiss if I didn't touch upon uh, the current events right now. And actually, a couple of weeks ago, interviewed Noah Coborn, who is an anthropology professor for Biddington College. And he talked about Afghanistan and the interpreters and translators who are there and the issues and challenges with getting special immigrant visas. And he proposed the scenario if the troops pulled out, right? And the, the difficulties of getting special immigrant visas from their U.S. allies. So um, right now we seem to have that scenario come to fruition, right? Yeah. I'm just curious to hear your take on the current events that's happening right now. Yeah, I, I, we, we had an interview on This Week in Immigration back in episode 95 around Memorial Day with um, Steve Miska, who's the author of a book called Baghdad Underground Railroad, about his efforts to get Iraqi translators out into the United States. And he was talking about the same kind of thing, like, you know, President Biden announced we were going to be leaving Afghanistan uh, by, by September at that time. And, uh, you know, the concern about, at that time, 18,000 visas backlogged in the special immigrant visa program. It's probably more now. Um, and what are we going to do? And, and he was talking a lot about the need to kind of find an alternative evacuation plan. If you're not going to be able to process those number of visas, then can we at least get them someplace safe? So there have been people ad raising the alarms on this issue for months, for months. Um, and I think it's, it's somewhat unconscionable that the administration announced an earlier withdrawal and didn't operationalize its planning for this, this eventuality. Um, and you know now we're seeing the result of that. Literally thousands and thousands of people trying to flee Kabul, trying to flee Afghanistan. Um, 
Congress just last month passed a bill along with an emergency supplemental appropriations to increase the number of SIV visas available, something called the Allies Act, and money for the State Department to help relocate people from Afghanistan to a third country or someplace until they could process the visas to get here. Now I think we're way beyond that. Now we just need to mount as many flights as we can um, to get people here and then you know parole them and then process their visas when they get here. Um, because these are people that have been laying their lives on the line for us for the 20 years that we've been in Afghanistan. Absolutely. And to leave them, you know, now when we know that the Taliban has been hunting them um, just seems like an abdication of our responsibility. How will we ever get people to trust us again if we can't keep our promises to these folks? Um, I think that's a that that's at the core of who we are as in the United States. Like we need to keep our promise here. Right. It will be a disservice on our end. Um, it must be protected. So um, we will definitely see how these events roll out over the next couple of weeks. And, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure that cooler heads will prevail and the right things will be done. Um, well, Teresa, this was uh, absolutely uh, amazing and we actually look forward to the new policies and any new projects that you guys are working out on um, because what we've read is, is very insightful and uh, something that people on the hill should definitely keep their eyes on um, because you. it does keep that bipartisan viewpoint right it's yeah. uh, from a viewpoint that both sides can see and appreciate and it might help the likelihood of getting it actually passed we appreciate your perspective and the work that you do in this space thank you so much and uh your listeners you can find more of our stuff at uh, www.bipartisanpolicy.org immigration follow immigration nerds on twitter at imm nerds and erickson immigration group on linkedin to join in the conversation I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.